This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Live from CthulhuCon in Portland, Oregon. The king's port of the West. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include... Insane gods. Predatory fungi. Human-faced rats. Blind inhuman flautists. How to get rid of the Innsmouth look. And our ultimate insignificance. In the face of a vast and indifferent cosmos. Plus, maybe even... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. So, uh, as uh, those of you who listen to our podcast, uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, which drops every uh, Friday morning, uh, no, we start off our live episodes with the ceremonial uh, drawing of the Nerd Trope cards. This is where we pick uh, one card from the Nerd Pile, one card from the Trope Pile, and Ken improvises an explanation of how these go together. And we thought, uh, because this is CthulhuCon, that we would ask, first of all, would you like to be pandered to... CthulhuCon audience by having a Cthulhu-themed item substituted for one of these cards. So or I'll, added to. Added to. I right. was going to substitute. You substitute? Yeah, All well, right. we could go for a three-four. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. It's a live show. Pigs could uh, run in at any time and squeal around, and monkeys could that fly. That would be the William Hope Hodgson con. Yes, the exactly. Pigs con. The pigs con. Uh, so, all in favor of pandering? Uh, As always, an audience is ready to be pandered to, so uh, I'm going to draw the nerd card. It's Da Vinci. Da Vinci. And the trope card is... is... Yagalanak. (laughs) Yagalanak. All right. 
Yigalanak, of course, uh, famously intersects our world in the revelations of Glocky, which are disguised as pornography, and along with pornography come etchings, as we all know, especially from the era in which the revelations of Glocky are composed, which is late 18th, mid-19th century. Now, we know this about da Vinci. Da Vinci is, of course, famously antinomian. He has uh, heresy problems all over, the, all over the map, has to leave Italy in a great hurry and go to France for reasons that don't bear uh, discussion. It was a time when you came down to the bad case of heresy fairly frequently. Right, and uh, we also know that da Vinci was an etching maker. Uh, from uh, way back, or if not an etching maker, maker of something that could turn into etchings. And so therefore, what we have, and this is more of a uh, more of a MacGuffin, really, than it is a whole storyline, but as a proper MacGuffin can, it can spawn a whole storyline. What we have is the zeroth revelation of Glocky. Uh, the first revelation of Glocky. The revelation of Glocky, as uh, it was uh, passed down in Britain, is about a lake somewhere in the Severn Valley. But obviously... Leonardo's revelation of Glocky is from the Lake Nimai, the lake around which, according to J.G. Fraser, all human religion descends as the ritual king of the wood, the priest of Lake Nimai, is slaughtered by uh, his successor with a sickle uh, after selecting a golden bough from the, uh, from the tree above Lake Nimai. That this uh, fundamental uh, massacre and replacement myth uh, also a, a prototypical castration myth, qua uh, Adonis and Kybele, is the fundamental source of all human religion. And when we ask what is the fundamental source of all human religion, we know that it is misunderstood dream sendings of the elder gods, in this specific case, Yigalanak. Because what do we know about sickles, castration, and lakes? We know that that is Yigalanak territory. So, uh, Leonardo da Vinci in Italy working out the mysteries of the universe, the Vitruvian man, helicopters, the whole nine yards, trying to figure out what is the underlying truth behind these mysteries that he's painting. The, Are you suggesting that he's knowing things that man was not meant to know? I suggest that Leonardo da Vinci, by definition, knows everything. Therefore, that would include things man is not meant to know. A, a subset. A the, subset the, of those things. Right, yes. Leonardo da Vinci knows things you are not meant to know. Uh, and during his investigations, he reaches Lake Nimai, uh, communes therein with Yigalanak, draws anatomically perfect depictions of Yigalanak and the obscenities around the lake that have been passed on, possibly stored within the DNA of the trees growing up out of uh, the shores of Lake Nimai. And this set of illustrations, this set of etchings, this set of Eka Vit Vitruvian uh, beings becomes the corpus of the zeroth uh, revelation of Glocky, for which he is forced to flee Italy and seek refuge in the court of France. The court of France, of course, at this time is uh, run by uh, Francis I, who is famously known as the Spider King. And uh, what do we know about spiders? That's right, lots of little arms, not particularly human, and eat people after they have sex with them. So, Francis I is corrupted by the zeroth revelation of Glocky that Leonardo brings with him out of Nimai, and the way that the uh, Yagalanak reaches England, I suspect, is from English travelers in France during the, uh, the, the great uh, the Grand Tour. They would go around, they would look 
through um, uh, the works, especially of Italian and French uh, Mannerist and Baroque uh, artists. They would discover things and they would bring them back. They would ask themselves, is that obscenities on that lake? Yes. <laughs> I, I need to bring that back to my remote country estate for yes. reasons that don't bear asking, <laughs> you commoner. And so in the same way that Piranesi uh, and the, the Carceri, the great dungeons, the mysterious wheels that turn in the darkness, uh, barely glimpsed tortures become a huge component of the English Gothic, so too does Leonardo's zeroth revelation of Glocky become a component of the English Gothic expression that is the revelation of Glocky. And because Yagalanek is an outer god, he is not pinned down to one lake or another lake. And so once this uh, shadowy cabal of Welsh borderer uh, uh, nobleman comes back from France with the copy of Leonardo's zeroth revelation, they reinstorate Yagalanek to their own lake, to their own Lake Glocky, uh, somewhere in uh, Wales. And that is what recreates the current Yagalanek and sort of reorients him into a Welsh uh, a mythos, expanding backwards into Welsh history as well as forwards into uh, things like George Bataille and the right. Asafal movement. Yeah, all he has to do to be Welsh is add about another 14 letters to his name yes. and he's good to go. Yeah, originally a Galanac could not be Welsh because his name was too pronounceable, I right. believe, was the, was the reason. And so the Welsh content people wouldn't let it happen. But that's, that's the secret history of the revelations of Glocky, is that it is based on a uh, da Vinci uh, description of the true rites of Nimai, that when uh, J.G. Fraser stumbles on them, they become the golden bough and incidentally destroy all Christian consensus in academic religious studies. So our live episodes are all about questions from the audience. We have set up, uh, because we're terrible at restating the question for podcast listeners, a microphone here in the aisle. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this technology, you might think it is a selfie stick for your voice. So uh, step right up, questioners, and uh, come to the microphone and ask us your questions. Okay, so um, as the author of The Dreamhounds of Paris and the author of the forthcoming Dracula dossier, I haven't heard a lot about the relationship between the Dreamlands and Dracula, and of course they track Dracula in the novel through putting Mina into hypnotic trance, very Dreamlandsy. Uh, what is your idea of how those two things could be brought together, or can they? Well, Dracula, of course, is immortal, and uh, we know that he does not die in the uh, 1880s or 90s, as the, because uh, as the Dracula dossier reveals, that was just uh, part of the square up that. Uh, MI6 put on the official disinformation version of the novel, and so therefore uh, Dracula is hanging around uh, in the 30s, and uh, where, where else is he going to want to hang around than, uh, than Paris? And so uh, he's going to want to uh, meet up with the, uh, with the surrealists. He's going to probably not going to want to bite too many of them, uh, <laughs> but uh, if I were to have Dracula show up, I would have uh, the fun thing about Dracula, of course, is that he uh, is the great seducer. He uh, notoriously uh, hypnotizes women and tries to make uh, refashion them. Well, I would want to turn that on his head and have uh, Gala, Salvador Dali's wife and life partner, and prior to that, Eloir's life partner, get her claws into Dracula and have him meet his match. And so he would be hanging around, lovesick at night, in Paris, uh, one of Gala's many uh, liaisons, and uh, he's the ultimate survivor. She's the even more ultimate survivor. 
And so in order to uh, pursue her, uh, he would uh, have to start trying to get into the, the dreamlands. But do you, do you dream when you're a vampire? What's, what's he going to have to, what's his crisis going to be to, uh, that would cause yet more dissension within the ranks of the Surrealists? Um, I think Dracula, when he dreams, is going back to uh, the various uh, thought works and magic disciplines that he practiced the Scholomance in life. Dracula's nightmares are going to be sort of sterile replays of everything that he dreamed whenever he was alive as a medieval Hungarian-Romanian warlord, whatever it is you want to say the, the historical Dracula is. So his door to the dreamlands is always, it's not even into the symbolist dreamlands that the Surrealists are replacing. It's into an older, woodcut, uh, illuminated, creepy icon right. dreamlands that no one knows. And the reason, if one assumes for the, for the nonce that, uh, that Robin's vision of, of, uh, of wasting away Dracula uh, pinned uh, to Gala's uh, dance card like a moth is accurate, the reason that he is being kept around by Gala and by her circle is that he provides a portal back into an older dreamlands and that the surrealist project should not be about that and so this for the surrealists to try and get back into that old dreamland is actually a act of rebellion against Andre Breton and the other right, and, and the, the, the doctrinal surrealists right because they hate or they hate noblemen and especially noblemen who drain the blood of the working class right. as, as good communists. as he does and so they've used Gala to ensnare him and to uh, sort of lock him away, you know, during the day in the uh, in the woodcut. Uh, and this is the medieval blood dreamlands mm -hmm. uh, in which uh, every other person you meet is a saint with his head cut off. <laughs> and so, uh, by uh, when he's sleeping, he's trapped in this uh, medieval blood era back when he was mortal and vulnerable. And then, you know, when he's awake at night, he's also uh, trapped by Gala. And so he's trying to strike a deal. Usually, the intelligence agencies are coming after him. And now in the 30s, when they really need him, uh, both probably the Soviets and uh, uh, British intelligence are, are seeking him out. And he's like the John le Carré, reluctant burn spy who's got his personal problems and this, you know, it's really all about his crappy relationship in forming the espionage. But one of the things that he's doing by presenting this old, tempting world is that he is laying the seeds that are going to destroy the Surrealist movement because they start following, a lot of times, artistic movements that are pre-Surrealist, right? I mean, um, who is it that goes uh, full-on into uh, African art and things like that? Well, they're all into African art, yeah, but, but the uh, de Chirico goes back yeah. into older classical art, and in fact, eventually... And Dali, of course, does, Eventually, too. Dali does, uh, through Gala, so... Uh, and uh, Dali is, is even doing, um, you know, religious art and the saints being tortured and things like yeah, that. Yeah, so, so that's probably where that comes from, is that uh, Dracula eventually gets the upper hand, uh, and that implies, then, that he moves to Hollywood, uh, when uh, when the war starts, and uh, that's when he can get up to all manner of, uh, of trouble. All right. Next up to the microphone. Scott. Special guest star, Scott Clancy. Scott Clancy. I keep meaning to actually submit this formally to uh, Time Incorporated, uh, but I'm clearly too lazy to do it, so I'm going to take advantage of this moment here. My, uh, my question is for, it's not really a question of whether you want this to happen or not. Pretty sure you don't want this to happen. I'm pretty sure Time Incorporated wouldn't want it to happen either. But uh, how do you prevent the Sino Soviet split? 
Is there a way for Time Incorporated to, would there be a way for perhaps Time Incorporated's enemies mm -hmm. to travel back and, and ensure the, the, the shadowy, the shadowy other second force that we have detected here yes, and there in the time the, stream? The, the numbers and shadows mm -hmm. of their influence in the time stream. Uh, if they were perhaps uh, planning on preventing a, uh, the, the split and then preserving a monolithic communist adversary in the 60s, how would uh, how is it a fiendish plan be achieved? I think that the first thing that you want to, I mean, you have to get rid of Mao, right? Because Mao is the supreme egotist who knows uh, Lenin better than the Russians and Marx better than the Germans. So you need to get rid of Mao, which so far I'm on board with, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you want to have him knocked into a ravine in Yinan province? I'm all over it, shadowy other time agency. Let's, let's get together. <laughs> But I suspect that um, there are, I mean, even in the very late periods of the Maoist uh, rule, people like Lin Bao were seen as potential Soviet Kaisers. Um, and so there are always going to be people in the CCCP who are uh, pro-Soviet rather than uh, Maoist. And I don't know whether or not Zhou Enlai is one of them. Zhou Enlai begins as sort of the orthodox communist back in the day, but of course Mao was, you know, towing the, St the Stalinist line back in the day. So I don't know if merely replacing Mao with Zhou is enough to do it, because the Soviets, when they ran the Chinese resistance, they didn't really want Mao to do the long march at all. They said, don't go back up to the north, you jerk. We already have the north. Stay down there. And Mao was like, I, if I stay down here, I could be killed. I'm not going to do this crap. And so Mao's long march begins as the first thing that, you know, eliminates that. Now, so what you might want to do is simply eradicate the Maoist cell of the Chinese Communist Party and leave the Chinese Communist Party centered in Shanxi province, right? Because what you get is you may not actually wind up with a full-blown communist China, that the whole part of China falls, but what you might wind up is a Chinese Korea or a Chinese Vietnam where, the, because the Soviets are going to still take Manchuria, right after the war or at the very tail end of the war they're still going to move as far south as they can so maybe what you wind up with is a nationalist regime that runs south china and a communist regime that runs north china and because it always has the threat of chang and the nationalists the kmt moving north it has to stay on on spec the way that north korea had to stay on spec for so long so i think if you're looking at pre preventing a sino-soviet split Either you just have to keep shuffling through party heads until you get a Lin Bao. And again, even Lin Bao, perhaps if he'd run China, he might not have done it. Because at some point you, you're like, oh, right, I have a billion people in nuclear weapons. Why am I listening to you again? Um, and there's just going to be some sort of geopolitical necessity that's going to drive those two loci apart. But I think if you split China down the middle uh, in 47 or 49, you have a much better chance, ironically, of keeping China Soviet because they are not going to have a second place to go, just like North Vietnam couldn't... I mean, they could barely play the Soviets against the Chinese during the Vietnam War uh, because every time they try to do it, the Soviets would say, well, yeah, you try those Chinese-made anti-aircraft missiles, you see how well they work. And then Hanoi would come crawling back to Moscow. So I think that this, a similar problem is going to obtain if, if there's a, a legitimate... And not in the sense of legitimate, but in the sense of dangerous uh, Guomindang power still in South China. So I think that's probably your best bet. And again, failing that, you know, you just have to keep showing up at Politburo meetings and plugging people who 
<laughs> take an independent line. But that seems much more like the other time. There's a lot less drinking and a lot more shooting people in closed rooms well, than I'm comfortable with. Yes, not, right. Yes, right. The above board alcohol and prosperity for all. Well, normally when we get a request for Time Incorporated that asks to do something uh, evil, the, the question then becomes, well, why did you do the thing that ensured the current timeline mm -hmm. against the forces of the, uh, uh, the, the shadowy unnamed nemesis? But here it's, need we even explain why you uh, had to have a Sino-Soviet split? Well, you have to have a Sino-Soviet split because otherwise monolithic communism wins the Cold War and you can't have that. Um, that's just good, that's just, you know, good management on my part, thank right. you. <laughs> uh, next question. As, uh, as cinephiles, and specifically cinephiles interested in the international uh, film market, uh, do you see the rise of Nigerian filmmaking, Nollywood in particular, as, as having a, a global impact, or is it sort of doomed to, to just be a sort of parochial regional power? Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, so the Nigerian film industry is this incredible, scrappy industry that has is churning out tons and tons of uh, inexpensively made, uh, they're previously shot on video and looked at um, movies for the domestic African market. And, uh, but they're getting more and more sophisticated all the time. And as far as I know, we don't yet have a, uh, a John Wu or uh, Park or, uh, you know, even a, a Tarkovsky of, of Nollywood yet. But eventually, there's going to be somebody who gets involved with that system, who does what people do whenever there's a studio system for creation of movies, which is they're going to try and sneak their own viewpoint in it through the back door and use it as a vehicle for their individual visions. And since everything is hyper-accelerated now, uh, what took the Hong Kong film industry, you know, 40 to 60 years uh, to do, which was to start creating things that were also of interest to the uh, international cineast audience, uh, I think is going to probably happen in you know five to ten years, and somebody will come along and have the uh, sort of a take on things that will uh, create the sort of renaissance that we've had in Hong Kong and South Korea as you know more and more international cinemas started out being art cinemas and then gradually became interested more in genre and commerciality in order to survive in a world without arts grants. And Nollywood is already ahead of the curve there because it's always been a popular cinema. So my guess is in the next uh, generation or uh, half a generation, will somebody amazing will come out of that world. I think that uh, that is certainly one way to bet, but I would remind the, uh, the audience that Bollywood is a hundred-year-old cinema tradition and still hasn't had a breakout hit into straight fa straightforward Western audiences, right? They're, the number of, of Western moviegoers who don't know who Shah Rukh Khan is or don't know who Amitabh Bachchan is is staggeringly high. But because India is a billion-person market by itself <laughs> and Bollywood is also huge in Central Asia, it's huge in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Australia, uh, there's lots of areas where uh, that is the, the cinema. You go to a movie theater in Jakarta and you've got a Bollywood film playing and a Hong Kong film playing and that's what's there in Indonesia in a pirated Hollywood movie playing probably. But uh, because they have this giant domestic market, they have not had the impetus that Hong Kong and South Korea did to move outside that. Uh, and so that may also be true of Nollywood given that Nigeria is one of the you know four or five most populous countries in Africa and then I assume Nollywood also exports to the rest of West Africa culturally, so they've got another, maybe not billion people, but 800 and 
million, 600 million person domestic market to serve. So they don't have the same drive to appeal to the West that, uh, that South Korea and Hong Kong did. And they also don't have the ideological reasons that Hong Kong and South Korea both did. I mean, Hong Kong was, was deliberately doing it as a, please don't kill us <laughs> uh, approach. Um, and then South Korea is very much doing it as part of branding themselves as an independent power player in soft power in the Pacific Rim. India knows it's a country. It doesn't need to come begging for Americans to like it. And so I don't know to what extent that's true of the Nigerian art world, the Nigerian film world. Um, I think that, like Robin says, the fact that Nollywood has always been a almost purely popular or populist cinema is going to stand it in good stead because the thing that is always getting in the way of Bollywood is people who love Indian art films and are saying, oh, no, 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 not that horrible Bollywood crap. This is Satyajit Ray, where nothing ever happens and there's no songs. It's like, well, right. great, but I don't want to watch that. I want to watch something happening with songs. And so it's harder for Bollywood to get through that artistic you know, uh, barrier in a way than it might be for right. Nollywood. They, they also keep shooting themselves in the foot. So, for example, every year uh, at TIFF, uh, Toronto International Film Festival works really hard to lure a popular, fun Bollywood movie and make a big deal of it and make it a gala. But the uh, Indian producers, first of all, always want to ship a version with all the music cut out because they think that's what the West wants. Uh, it's like, not if they want a Bollywood movie, it is. It'd be like if a Hong Kong, if John Woo was like, well, let's have one without the gunfights. Yeah, exactly. Let's, I think Hard Boiled can really be better if there's no gunfighting in it. Yeah, and uh, they always wind up getting cold feet about showing a movie that hasn't premiered yet in India. So every single year, they bring a gala, uh, they have one screening, and then they cancel all the other screenings that would then. Uh, get the international film fans watching them and talking about them uh, and then it doesn't go anywhere and it loses the whole purpose of being at TIFF. I think what will, when there's a crossover uh, it will be an Indian crime movie without music. That there's sort of a, uh, an Indian crime genre developing that I'm, I personally am more interested in than the Bollywood musicals because the... But even those have uh, item songs in them. A lot of them. Right. I mean, the crime movies will still have the same... I mean, the, the classic example, I forget what movie it is, but there's a detective and he's chasing a killer and they chases him into a nightclub. And then we see the song that's being performed on stage of the nightclub and then he chases him out of the nightclub. <laughs> I mean, it's... We interrupt this chase scene for a dance number, right. which is great because it's a great dance number and it informs sort of the you know emotional tenor of the film, but it is a little jarring if you're used to Western plot uh, uh, mechanisms. The new generation of crime movies that Robin is talking about, a lot of them, because they are set in the sort of uh, Indian mafia world, the, the D uh, syndicate and some of the other syndicates, who also ran um, uh, uh, nightclubs and things like that, they have a more integrated uh, dance number. And of course, like great mafia movies, all have a wedding scene. Bollywood thrives on great wedding scenes. And so you can build a strong crime movie now with uh, not quite Dogma 99, but at least sensible item songs that fit the story in a slightly less jarring way to Western sensibilities. But again, uh, watching Bollywood is just a matter of learning the vocabulary and then internalizing it, just like watching any other foreign uh, art form. Next question. 
Gentlemen, I have a two-part question for you, and my second question depends on your answer to the first question. All right. This question has wheels with So, uh, my first question is whether you watched the first season of True Detective. Yes. Yes. Excellent. And we covered it previously on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Oh, well then, you might already answer this question, in which case you have a different answer. All right. So, let's say, um, we've all been waiting for the second season, and I can't really wait any longer, and you guys are here, and <laughs> you're writing. Right? So, um, if I was to say, hypothetically, hire you to write a script for the second season, of True Detective, right? Which, as far as I can tell, is probably going to be set in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Will probably involve uh, maybe uh, detectives who are of some sort. Yeah, of some sort. Right? <laughs> One, if not both of them, will be true. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and possibly a subplot involving the King in Yellow in some way, the Yellow King. Um, but I also want this uh, episode to be really successful, and I know the most successful show in HBO right now is Game of Thrones. So I'd like to ask you if you could pitch to me a script. For an episode of True Detective, that would have been well, a series of fans True Detective, yeah. Of Game of Thrones. Okay. That is the challenge. That's, That's the challenge. Thank you. Right. So, so it has to stick within the true crime genre, uh, but there's overtones of the king in yellow. Uh, and the thing that appeals to fans of Game of Thrones is uh, brothels. Um, so uh, nudity and stabbings. N nudity and stabbings. So uh, this is uh, uh, set amid the sort of James Elroy uh, underbelly of prostitution uh, in uh, uh, Los Angeles and the way that it intersects with uh, uh, the uh, grade Z film industry. And uh, so basically, I think we're looking at a uh, serial killer uh, amid the prostitution ring. And uh, let's uh, let's switch it up a bit and uh, and make it the Johns getting killed instead of the prostitutes. Uh, so who are our detectives? Uh, let's see. Uh, someone on this side of the room, give us someone who might be cast as one of the detectives in the show. In the show. Are, they, are they looking for actors? Yeah, actors. Okay. Bill Murray. Okay, so Bill Murray. Bill Murray. And <laughs> now you, you you're on that side of the you're room. You're on that side oh. of the room. Bill Murray. Someone on this side of the room. Uh, he's dead. He's no, he's no longer with us. <laughs> we, we can we can do a lot with special effects, but I'm not sure we can rotoscope dead Charles Nelson Riley. How about Peter Dinklage? Peter Dinklage. Okay. All right, that's a good Game of Thrones. And in fact, time. he is going to be in a police procedural for HBO after this. So. Yeah. Um, All right. So Dinklage and uh, Bill Murray are the are our two true detectives. Uh, I think Bill Murray is our Hollywood Jim Vincennes type guy who is the interface between the LA uh, Police Department and the underground world of porn production, uh, borderline snuff filmmaking, right. prostitution, etc. Are we pulling the Black Dahlia in or are we not getting away from Black Dahlia? We're going to move well, to they, the 60s? Elroy's got it. Elroy's got the Black okay, Dahlia already. Right. So. So, so let's move to the 60s, Okay. I think. Because that also is when porn is beginning to sort of bubble up. Right? It's no longer the fully contained world. Right. And also at this time, you are looking at people who are getting source material from a lot of different places, right? You're, you're opening it up to a, a bunch of different sort of sources. And to get our king in yellow, let's do a meta thing where, just like AIP has suddenly discovered Lovecraft, let's say that one of these borderline, is it porn, is it not porn producers has discovered Robert W. Chambers. Right, and so the objective here is someone's trying to create the stag reel in yellow. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> Bachelor party uh, smut film. Right. That at the end, the you know the 
the couple's going at it, and at the end it pans up, because of course, you know, smut films sometimes focus in on the body, so they, the shot is going to be, you know, you see the couple going at it, and they pan in for a body shot, and they pan out, and then you see the two uh, featureless flesh faces staring at the reel, and then the film can burns, and all the Shriners in a small town in Idaho see this, and then go on a murder rampage. Yeah. And so you have, I, I think what you've got is you've got the, um, uh, the, the stag film in yellow, and you've also got, oh man, where was I going? I, I had it, and then you sort of took it to Idaho. Um, <laughs> as one does. As you do. Um, I, I think that you, you have... And ironically, that was a 60s porn term. Right. Well, take it to Idaho, take honey. Take it to Idaho, honey. <laughs> Bring it on. Um, all right, let's, let's ignore what I was thinking of, because obviously I can't think of it again. But the, uh, so, so we have Bill Murray is, is going in. What, who does Peter Dinklage play? Okay, well, he can't actually be a cop. All right. So he's got to be a medical examiner. All right. Yeah. And uh, so the, uh, he's a genius medical examiner who, despite his, uh, his stature, has uh, risen uh, through the ranks, but he's still, uh, just like in Game of Thrones, is, is scorned because he's unconventional and it's still the 60s. And so uh, he is starting to get clients showing up uh, with weird deformities that the people are, are starting to die and they have these weird facial disfigurements associated with them. And, and the question is, are these post-mortem mutilations conducted by this serial killer who calls himself the King in Yellow, right? Yes. And so... Um, Bill Murray has to sort of dive into the world, and Peter Dinklage is sort of orbiting it, and so Dinklage becomes the um, uh, the um, uh, Woody Harrelson character, right. and Bill Murray becomes the Matthew McConaughey character, right? The guy who is moved, pulled into the the venality and destroyed by it, whereas Dinklage is the witness who has his choice at the end to yes. witness or turn away. Right, because right? he actually could be a good cop, except he can't right. pass the physical. Yeah, uh, Murray. Uh, is still a cop and is totally burned out and uh, jaded and, and, and corrupt and, and corrupt. Yeah. And so uh, Dinklage's job is to convince Murray to start doing his job. And uh, throughout the course of the series, he gets him more and more uh, motivated and interested in being a good cop again, which is why, of course, he's horribly squished and goes mad at the end and witness. He's the one who witnesses the real. And then the, you know, and but it looks like they've destroyed the thing. And then the last shot of the the, uh, the season is just the more film cans being loaded onto trucks and being driven. Like, uh, like Santa Mira at the end of um, uh, Adventure of the Body Snatchers. Yes. So is the producer of this porn flick, how are they connected to Los Angeles's power structure? Because like the first True Detective, like all good noir, yes. there has to be real estate at the bottom of it somehow. Right. Um, and, and so uh, what, are we going to say that the producer is shopping his own relatives into this universe because he's a horrible um, uh, a, a patriarchal pedophile? Is he just uh, a guy whose position of power lets him collect you know, tramps and runaways from uh, all parts the, of the country? The victims are all uh, own property that he has interest in. Right. And so he's entertaining his his uh, business partners by, uh, uh, by by bringing them into this world but, yeah. from which they are then deformed and destroyed and then he picks up the pieces. Yeah. All right. It had a, you know, a conspiratorial focus to it as well. And it's the 60s and it's L.A. What if you threw in uh, the King and Yellow, isn't it King and Yellow, it's El Rey Amarillo. And there's an element of 60s Mexican master. I think that's an episode. Yeah. I don't it's, think it's the whole show. It's they there's they have to go to Tijuana. Yeah. There's an episode and that's the yeah. one it's all one tracking shot in Tijuana. Right. And, 
but but they're following there because there's a murder like it that has happened yes. somewhere in wherever the rich people live that is not Tijuana because right. that's a horrible hellhole. But they live somewhere, and then they're following that 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 story, and it turns out that of course these films are being dubbed into Spanish and shown as part of the donkey show circuit there in Tijuana, and that that's what's causing a lot of the sort of you know is it you know a extra uh, planar madness or is it just plain old deviant madness madness right. that's that's going on as a result of it and I, I think that that maybe the one episode and then there everyone is wearing a mask because these mutilations on the face are the stigmata of the of the king in yellow's uh, work and the question is did you survive an attack what's going on and that maybe that's the question is is there a survivor in Mexico that you can hunt down. I think that's where you bring the mask guy in. Yeah. He wears no mask. No mask. Right. And so uh, pr- pr- prior to this, El there's Alido. been, you know, so, you know, there's been Mexican mask wrestlers sort of in the margins and you see them and this is the episode where that all pays off. And the, this, the Tijuana episode that's all one tracking shot is also for Game of Thrones fans. It's the one with the most nudity in it. Yes. Next question. Next question. Uh, I was curious, you have the, the obligatory uh, imaginary uh, death match. Uh, so who wins in a traditional boxing match, uh, in their prime, of course, Muhammad Ali versus Nyarlathotep? Or could it be that uh, one of the forms of Nyarlathotep is, in fact, Muhammad Ali? Well, that's racist. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it, this is a Lovecraft event, and there's yeah. a, racism has to come up in every panel. So yeah, right. So thank you for that. For that. Um, I would say uh, it depends on whose comic book you're in. Uh, if you remember, in Superman versus Muhammad Ali, Superman lost the boxing match because Superman was fighting under a red sun, and he didn't have all of his superpowers, and so Muhammad Ali is actually a better boxer than Superman, which I think is not surprising to anyone. And so Muhammad Ali beats Superman. So therefore, if this is in Muhammad Ali's comic book, if this is something that is being done in some imaginary 70s, only slightly different from our own, the one in which the Harlem Globetrotters are showing up in Scooby-Doo, uh, you have Muhammad Ali having a crossover with the Cthulhu Mythos in which he boxes uh, the Black Pharaoh um, uh, in the, um, the, what would it be called, the, the, the Hayo in Cairo, something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think that in that universe, uh, the series of Muhammad Ali adventure comics that came out from this imaginary publisher, yes, Muhammad Ali defeats Nirlathotep, and it's just one issue. Like no one ever makes a big deal because it's the seventies. We're the pre-nerddom as we understand it. And so now people on the internet are: Did Muhammad Ali fight Nirlathotep in a comic book? I'm. Can you get Muhammad Ali number twenty-three and then go back and look? And you're like, I, I don't know. Now, of course, in the real world, if <laughs> Nirlathotep and Muhammad Ali are fighting. It is because Nirlathotep wants it to happen that way. So even if Nirlathotep loses, he has won because that is his strategy. And whether or not Muhammad Ali is simply a tool or a pawn being manipulated in such wise as to cause uh, um, uh, Lovecraft's uh, beloved uh, uh, white New England establishment to continually lose its shit, or whether by losing to Muhammad Ali, Nirlathotep is presenting a false image of mankind's capability of resisting the mythos, all the better to leave us destroyed because we've put all of our belief into Muhammad Ali.
might be all three. He might have some even further plan that we can't even adduce. But in the real world, uh, the Black Pharaoh is a guy who is down with leopards licking his hands. So I just don't think Muhammad Ali can psych him out. That's just what I'm saying. Right. Well, Nyarlathotep has always been the Christ figure of the mythos. Yeah. So this may be his uh, moment where he engineers his own uh, death to bring about the apocalypse. And if you see, you know, Muhammad Ali punches Nyarlathotep and then he resolves into a pile of black eels on international live television, and then they uh, all start biting everyone in the in the hall, and they rip Howard Cosell's face off. Uh, that then uh, he wears no mask. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, how are we on time? We are uh, 3.40, so we have uh, 10 minutes or 9 minutes left. Okay. 10 minutes left. So who has a, a 9 to 10 minute question? Or two 4 minute questions. Yes. Uh, what would a modern cult of Sathagua look like these days? A modern cult of Sathagua? What would it look like? Um, I think that one of the fun things about the cult of Sathagua, and I put it into Dreamhounds of uh, Paris because... Uh, Averroin is, of course, the French province where Sathagwa has sort of wormed his way into the, uh, the, the, the church and, and the state in Averroin. So I figured that those guys, like every ambitious French provincial, went to Paris and set up an uh, influence uh, peddling-making ring in the French Ecoles uh, uh, system. I think a modern-day cult of Sathagwa, because if you look at Clark Ashton Smith, the, the Sathagwa worshippers are primarily crazy wizards because Sathagwa is the great old one that if you summon him well he has a 50-50 chance he'll eat you or he'll say oh yeah that's the sign of Koth you make it this way you know and I, I so I think that your modern day cult of Sathagwa is going to be people who are uh, deliberate seekers after knowledge and they are going to be people who are sort of um they, they, they seek after knowledge, but they seek after knowledge with a specifically uh, satirical, meta-textual, humorous fashion. In, in uh, Dreamhounds, I mentioned the Bourbaki Club, the mathematical psych- circle of the 20s and 30s, as a locus of Sathagwa worship, because their attitude towards higher math, which was to publish papers that were so abstruse that only members of the Bourbaki Club could, uh, uh, could, could figure out what parts are real and what parts aren't, and they would just do sort of practical jokes as math theorems, that kind of thing. I think that's sort of where you would get. So you would have astronomers who detect gamma ray bursters that are going to destroy all life on Earth and get a big thing about it. And then another astronomer says, oh, look at that. It's pointed the other way. It's not going to destroy Earth. That made you look. And so there's going to be sort of, so in the sort of apocalypse porn true science subgenre, I think that's where the surfaces of this cult are emerging in the modern day. So every time you read an asteroid is going to pass within 243 miles of Earth on July 17th, 2019. Could it hit Earth and destroy us? More on this after the, this commercial for lawn furniture. Or whatever, right? Those guys are the cultists of Sathagwa because they are literally treating the apocalypse as a joke. You know, Nilathotep has a you know, good game in it, but Sathagwa literally laughs at people. And me- I mean, the, 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 the adventure of the seven Jesuses, or whatever it is, is an endless shaggy dog story. That's the way that Sathagwa messes with you. And so I think that the, the, the made you look trivializing of the apocalypse by really, really smart scientists is what the modern day cult of Sathagwa looks like. So is there, does someone have a lightning round question? So if there was a Jumanji type movie based on like a, a Arkham Horror or Mansions of Madness, who should direct that? You mean as punishment? 
<laughs> um, Robin, who, who should direct uh, the Jumanji based on Arkham Horror, the sequel to Jumanji that uh, everyone has called out for? Uh, Adam McKay of Anchorman fan. <laughs> Adam McKay of Anchorman fame. Okay, I'm going to go with uh, uh, Peter Jackson. Frighteners era Peter Jackson should do it. Oh, uh, but we can't get old Peter Jackson back. He's no, gone into the but he dead. has to direct it until he gets back to that Peter Jackson. So, Let's make so, it like his um, Apocalypse Now, where you know we're just going to keep killing his cast members and immuring him in the Philippines until he comes back out with the Frighteners. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Raise a Pilsner glass in the microbrewery of our hearts by clicking the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com Join such illustrious patrons as Russell Spicklemeyer Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or new take on the donut by advertising with us Grab the rate sheet at our site On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height And he's at Robin D. Law. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff <laughs>